passage of scripture I want to read for my prepared message is out of Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 14. I'm going to go all the way through verse 29. Mark chapter 9, verse 14 through 29. When Jesus, Peter, James, and John approached the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and legal experts arguing with them. And suddenly the whole crowd caught sight of Jesus. And they ran to greet him, overcome with excitement. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about? Someone from the crowd responded, teacher, I brought my son to you since he has a spirit that doesn't allow him to speak. Wherever it overpowers him, it throws him into a fit. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and stiffens up. So I spoke to your disciples to see if they could throw it out, but they couldn't. Well, Jesus answered them, you faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him, and when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a fit. He fell on the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, well, how long has this been going on? Well, he said, since he was a child. It's thrown him into a fire or into water, trying to kill him. If you can do anything, help us, show us compassion. Jesus said to him, if you, can, if you can do anything, all things are possible for the one who has faith. Well, at that, the boy's father cried out, I have faith. Help my lack of faith. Well, noticing that the crowd had surged together, Jesus spoke harshly to the unclean spirit, mute and deaf spirit. I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. After screaming and shaking, the boy horribly, the spirit came out. And the boy seemed to be dead. But in fact, several people said that he had died. But Jesus took his hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And after Jesus went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we throw this spirit out? Well, Jesus answered, throwing this kind of spirit out requires prayer. So I grew up on those images of Jesus where he's sitting on a rock and has all the children around him and, and he has his hands on them, he has his hands laying on them and he's blessing them. Or there's this painting that I would see in a lot of sanctuaries where Jesus is kneeling at a rock, looking up at the skies and he's praying. And both of these offered what felt like a, a very serene, mellow, chill and very patient Jesus. So you can imagine it was kind of unsettling when I would come across an image or a description of Jesus which didn't fit my caricatures or didn't fit my assumptions. And that in part is part of the issue. Sometimes we try to squeeze Jesus into our own assumptions, at least I do, into my own caricatures, rather than letting the life of Jesus speak for itself. And this can be problematic because sometimes I end up missing the full picture of Jesus and the example of Jesus. Now, the story from uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, is an example. It's one of those instances in which my assumptions and the images and caricatures I have of Jesus is challenged. Not only my assumptions of Jesus, but in fact also my assumptions and caricatures of the disciples. See, at times I've tended to look at these disciples as sort of heroes of the faith or maybe super spiritual people that I could never measure up to. But you know, on a closer read, I begin to realize they're just as human as I am, or I'm just as human as they are. 
And it's really these clash of assumptions that invites me into this journey of spiritual transformation because I'm invited to take an honest look at the way of Jesus, and I'm also invited to take an honest look at the lives of the disciples. And I discover that it's a lot closer to my world than I ever imagined. So in last week's prepared message, I shared from the first part of Mark 9, uh, Mark chapter 9, of Jesus on top of the mountain, and he's transformed right before Peter, James, and John, the three disciples that went up with him. And Elijah and Moses in this story appear with Jesus. So there is this amazing, this awe-inspiring, this, this moment of worship. And Peter wants, if you will, to just enshrine it. He wants to capture that moment and simply stay there. But Jesus doesn't stay on the mountain. He, along with Peter, James, and John, they descend down from the mountain and back into day-to-day -day life, back to real life, if you will. And by the way, you ever noticed how in the Gospels and the life of Jesus, Jesus is always descending. He descends down to wash the feet of the disciples. Paul in Philippians has him descending, emptying himself and taking the form of a slave and going to the cross. So the movement of the way of Jesus, the movement of the way of the kingdom is always descending. It's always down. We are such a society of upward mobility. The way of Jesus is downward mobility, coming down to those who need help, coming down to those who are suffering, coming down to those who are hurting. Because ultimately, that is where spiritual transformation and personal change is most likely to take place. It's in those moments where our faith intersects with our real life, like Jesus and the disciples coming down from the mountain. And we are faced with decisions and choices as to how we're going to show up and how we're going to respond. Now, the first thing we realize in this story of Mark 9 is that Jesus enters a very argumentative world. When he and the three disciples approach the crowd, they see this large crowd surrounding the disciples as they're having this argument with the religious experts of the day. So Jesus asks the obvious question, what are you arguing about? And out of the crowd comes this very distressed father. His son is overpowered by a spirit that essentially causes the boy to have seizures, complete with foaming of the mouth, grinding of the teeth, and a stiffening of his body and joints. Now, it could be that this was a medical condition rather than being possessed by some sort of spirit, but the story has us understand that he's possessed by the spirit, which in any case is distressing the father. He's very desperate to find relief and healing for his son. And I would imagine any parent can certainly appreciate this father's desperation. If you've ever had a child who is seriously ill, or you've ever had a child who's had a debilitating condition, you want nothing more than relief. You want nothing more than wholeness. You want nothing more than healing for your child. And the world that Jesus and his three disciples re-enter as they descend from the top of the mountain is this world in which they come face to face with hurt and pain and suffering while the followers of Jesus and the religious experts are off to the side arguing over what is the right thing to do according to the law. Now, it feels at least to me that we live in a very argumentative world right now. Conversations on Facebook and social media turn into who is right and who is wrong, power struggles, as friends and family argue with one another over opinions, politics, and the latest cultural issues. 
and it's the reason why they call it the cultural wars, and the cultural wars have become an all-out battle on many fronts. Over the past few years, many denominations, including Quakers, and your yearly meetings have argued over theology, have argued over methodology to the point of division, to the point of splits within these organizations. And there are times when folks within their own churches and local meetings get into arguments, albeit kind of very low-level ones, but people get a little bit bent out of shape, and there are arguments over issues of policy, practice, and even change. Now, there's nothing new about having arguments. There's nothing new about having disagreements. And I'm not even saying that that's inherently bad. But here's this. The issue is this. How much do these arguments distract us from seeing the needs, the hurt, the pain and suffering in our very midst? How often does the brokenness and the hurt in our world go unaddressed because we might be too busy or I might be too busy arguing over a point or arguing over the right way to do things and, and who is right and who is wrong and I'm trying to get that competitive edge on somebody. Now this is where I think the exasperated Jesus gets introduced. Jesus responds this way, you faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him to me, that is the boy. Now notice this, Jesus doesn't even ask what the others are arguing about. It's almost as if it's not an issue with him. Because Jesus, I don't think, came to necessarily settle our disputes and arguments. Yeah, Jesus came to show us the way to forgiveness and reconciliation, but he didn't come to settle our disputes and arguments. Jesus didn't come to determine for us who was right and who was wrong. Jesus came to offer healing and hope to a broken world, Jesus came to bring wholeness to the suffering and the hurting. Jesus came to bring a compassionate presence to those who are feeling desperate, to those who are feeling alone and in complete despair. And the Father even says to Jesus, the Father of the Son, if you can do anything, help us, show us compassion. And I imagine this desperate Father. I imagine the desperate Father of this distressed son being the embodiment of the whole world, saying to all of those who claim to follow Jesus and saying to the church today, if you can do anything, help us, show us compassion. You see, a suffering world isn't interested in our arguments. A suffering world necessarily isn't interested in our cultural wars or our efforts to prove who is right and who is wrong. A suffering world simply wants us to do something anything and mostly they want to know if we those who claim to be followers of Jesus and the presence of Jesus in the world they want to know if we will show compassion and I can tell you from experience personal experience that I've never experienced spiritual growth and transformation from winning a political or theological argument I've never felt my heart changed from within by winning a political or theological argument I have felt superior I have felt right, and sometimes I've felt even uh, a little uh, arrogant, but I've never felt spiritually transformed. But I have experienced spiritual growth and transformation, and I have felt my heart change when I have been willing in those moments to offer a compassionate presence to a broken and hurting world. Now, in response to this man's plea, Jesus says this, all things are possible for the one who has faith. And at that moment, the boy's father cries out, I have faith, help my lack of faith. 
And you know, as I reflected on these words, it helped me to see this, that faith is simply maintaining an openness to the possibility that God's compassionate presence can be a reality in our world and God's compassionate presence can make a difference in this world. Let me, let me share that again. I began to see that faith is maintaining this openness to the possibility that God's compassionate presence can be a reality in our world and that God's compassionate presence can make a difference in our world. And if this story in Mark tells us anything, it tells us that there is no greater healing force in our world than active compassion. Active compassion doesn't get sidetracked or distracted by competitive rivalries, cultural battles, or cultural arguments. Active compassion, it descends into the pain. It descends into the brokenness of our everyday world and seeks to bring a healing presence to all that is broken and suffering. And it even descends into our own brokenness. It even descends into our own pain and our own hurt as God's compassion comes to each of us. In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul wrote these beautiful words, quote, Therefore, as God's choice, holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, be tolerant with each other, and if someone has a complaint against anyone, forgive each other. And over all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, what I hear Paul saying is this, active compassion is all about putting on your work clothes and doing the hard work of loving and caring for one another. Paul doesn't give an exhaustive list in this passage, but it's a good start. Active compassion is being kind and gentle towards one another. Active compassion is being patient and tolerant with one another. Active compassion is looking past our complaints with one another and offering forgiveness and reconciliation. And active compassion is loving one another. But active compassion is also a caring presence to those who are lonely, disheartened, or discouraged. Active compassion can be when you offer a listening ear, maybe when you're actually face-to-face -face or even through a phone call. Compassionate presence is generosity in the form of sharing your own resources or your time. Active compassion is bringing relief to those who are suffering or oppressed or simply down on their luck. Sometimes active compassion is offering empathy it's offering prayers for those who are struggling. And active compassion can certainly be visiting and befriending those who feel outcast, those who feel excluded, those who feel lonely, and those who are marginalized or those who feel sick. Simply this, active compassion is the love of God with its work clothes on, stepping into the brokenness and the hurt and the pain of this world. Now, honestly, quite honestly, there are days I get discouraged and I feel that the arguing and the cultural wars, they've won the day and they will continue to distract and win the day and just take all the energy out. But you know, then I experience, I experience someone's compassion or I see someone practicing active compassion or I myself happen to stumble into offering active compassion and I feel like the father in the story when he says, I have faith, help my faith. And I have faith that compassion will prevail and, and, and I'm open to the possibility of that actually being the norm. But when I get discouraged, I simply pray, help my lack of faith. And God seems to show me some act of compassion. 
and my faith is restored, and I believe in the possibility that we can be a compassionate people that look after one another, that care for one another, and provide for each other's needs. It's interesting that at the end of the story, the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't throw the Spirit out. And Jesus answers this way, throwing this Spirit out requires prayer. Now, I don't think Jesus was necessarily talking about how to pray or the methodology or whether you close your eyes or fold your hands or kneel or sit or whatever. I think Jesus was simply saying, you know, guys, in order to be able to bring a healing presence and healing power to the brokenness of this world, you're going to need to spend time in communion with God, simply receiving from God God's love and compassion for your own selves. And that's what I would simply call prayer spending time in communion with God, simply receiving from God God's love and compassion for our own selves. Because ultimately, we can't offer what we have not experienced or what we have not received. The late Henry Nouwen wrote these words, quote, prayer reveals to us the spirit of the compassionate God. Let me read that again. Prayer reveals to us the spirit of the compassionate God. And as you and I receive God's compassion for all the hurting, broken, wounded places in our life, we're then able to offer to the world and those around us the act of compassion it so desperately wants and need. And it could be that as we open our hearts to God's compassionate presence, that we might even end up arguing less. We might, we might end up becoming less argumentative. I don't know, it could be. We might see that compassion and, and forgiveness and, and reconciliation and civility is far more appealing, far more energizing than continually arguing with folks over who's right and who's wrong and trying to get that competitive edge. Because what we realize is ultimately that life is really no longer a competition. Rather, the goodness of life is more about collaboration with God and collaboration with one another and compassion for one another. Jesus says to this desperate father, all things are possible. So what I say is this, for those of us desperate to see a changed and transformed world, Jesus says all things are possible. For those of us longing to see a world filled with compassion, Jesus says all things are possible. For those willing to put aside differences, to work together for a more compassionate world, Jesus says all things are possible. For those praying for a world healed of its division, of its enemy-making, and its hate, Jesus says all things are possible. For those struggling to feel compassion for themselves, to feel God's compassion for themselves, Jesus says all things are possible. For those wondering if their cynical heart will ever feel compassion again, Jesus says all things are possible. And I would just add this, for those who are tired of wasting time and energy on just arguing with others, and you want to be able to experience the compassion of God and share a compassionate presence to this world, you know what? Jesus says, all things are possible.